When we think of Apollo astronauts, quite often an image that will come to mind is of them driving around in sports cars. Well, today we're going to find out about one of the sports cars, the Corvette that was used by Apollo 15 Command Module Pilot Al Warden. And to do that, we're joined by Max Kaiserman from Lunar Replicas, who has managed to acquire this historic car in order to preserve and restore it. Many of our listeners have got Lunar Replicas clothing, and we'd love to see what you've got. Send them some photos via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And if you get a moment, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast platform that you're using to listen to us. That will really help us out. But right now, enjoy episode 117 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 117 of the Space and Things podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing great. A little tired. There is a lot going on this week. We're both traveling next week, so I'm I'm preparing for that, Um, but I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to it, so it's going to be really cool. Yeah, there's always uh, a lot to do before you go away, isn't there, to get everything in, in all your ducks in a row, I think is the expression. Exactly. Get all your stuff in order and, and do And I got a pack and all that. I got a yeah. lot to do, but it's going to be worth it. Absolutely. So let's crack on with our main feature. Last week, Emily and I spoke to Max Kaiserman, founder of LunarReplicas.com, to talk about Al Warden's Corvette. Max is a friend of the podcast, and if you've been listening for a while, you'll recognize him from way back on episode 15, where we discussed Lunar Replicas and their amazing products. And Max also helped us set up our interview with former NASA flight director Jerry Griffin on episode 38. It's always great to speak to Max, who is so passionate about spreading the word about spaceflight and using props and materials to try and inspire other people to want to find out more he's also just a lovely guy who likes to bring people together so that's worth celebrating as we'll soon hear uh, max recently took ownership of al warden's apollo 15 corvette along with al warden's grandson uh william warden pinchak i think that's how that's pronounced if it's wrong please let me know and we can't think of anyone better to be looking after such a historical artifact So put on your seatbelt and get ready to go for a spin as we learn all about the AstroVets and what is so special about this car. Hello, Houston. The Endeavour is on station with cargo and what a fantastic sight. Beautiful news. Romantic, isn't it? Oh, this is really profound. I'll tell you, it's fantastic. All right. Welcome back, Max. And thank you so much for joining us once again. So you're refurbishing Al Warden's Corvette. But before we get to that, uh, for those who don't know, what's the story behind the astronauts having Corvettes back in the 60s and the 70s? Emily, no, that's a great question. It's really nice to be here. Nice to see you guys again. Uh, Once upon a time in around 1959, when uh, when they first announced the Mercury 7, there was a Indy 500 race car driver by the name of Jim Rathman later in life had purchased and owned a, uh, a General Motors dealership. So he sold Corvettes in Florida. They just closed a couple of years ago. Rathman Automotive was around for a long time. They owned a number of 
of uh, GM dealers. And he basically said, as a promotion for General Motors and for Rathman Automotive, I'm going to give an astronaut uh, whatever GM car he wants uh, for a year. It was a dollar a year. It was a lease through General Motors and through Jim Rathman. And uh, as the story goes, six of the seven Mercury astronauts got Corvettes. And John Glenn got a, you know, a country squire station wagon because he was <laughs> clean marine family man, you know. But um, but no, that's how it started. They These guys had Corvettes in 1959, 1960, whatever it was. From then on, if you were an astronaut in the program or if you were, you know, I, I'm not sure if it was just any astronaut or if it was, you know, you had a mission coming up or something like that. You could get for a dollar a year any GM car that you wanted. And usually they gave them back at the end of the year. Some guys bought them out, but it was a longstanding thing. So by Apollo 12, 1969, the Apollo 12 crew of Pete Conrad Albine and Dick Gordon decided they wanted three matching Corvettes, and it was going to be something different, not just something off the showroom floor. They had them painted in gold and black. They were matching <laughs> 427 big block Corvettes, and they went everywhere with them. They were just that the, was ubiquitous with the Apollo 12 crew, was these gold and black Corvettes. Well, the backup crew for Apollo 12 was Dave Scott, Al Warden, and Jim Irwin. And they said, when we have our shot, we're going to get three matching Corvettes too. And so sure enough, 71 comes around. They order three matching Corvettes in red, white, and blue. And frankly, actually Al Warden said he thought the gold and black was kind of tacky. So specifically <laughs> they got, they got red, white, and blue. And each one of them had red, white, and blue stripes uh, across the hood and uh, down the trunk. Uh, there's a phen- phenomenal picture from life magazine uh, that they're talking about the lunar rover Apollo 15 was the first J mission, which was the first mission with a lunar rover aboard. And they also had these cars, you know, so it was a picture of the lunar rover and the three cars somewhere out in the desert. You know, it's become this iconic picture. Also, coincidentally, the only picture that we have of the cars from the time period. So I'm I'm wow. right now I'm looking if anyone has pictures of of the astronaut Apollo 15 astronaut cars from the 70s. I'd love to see it. Conversely, the Apollo 12 crew was seen everywhere together. I mean, they, they went everywhere. They were they were in the press. They were on TV. They were, you know, they had magazine shoots and stuff like that. The Apollo 15 crew was not as tightly knit just personally, so they didn't do as much stuff together, and they weren't seen in the cars as much. Okay, so now let's fast forward 50 years. How the hell did you end up with this car? So it was found in a barn, essentially. It was a barn in a, uh, in a trailer park. No way. Uh, this Corvette collector, Danny Reed who purchased Alan Bean's car directly from General Motors. So he's the first, you know, civilian owner of that car. He bought it in 1971, is right after Al gave it back to General Motors, and then General Motors auctioned it off in a closed bid. Danny Reed bought it, and uh, he's been the sort of the AstroVet. That, that's what they call AstroVets, the AstroVet. Uh, he is the AstroVet collector who has collected several other astronaut Corvettes not the six that were custom made, the, the six that were custom made for Apollo 12 and 15, the three and three are the only ones that were custom made. The other ones were, were sort of just off the shelf showroom cars. He has a couple of the other showroom cars. He has Alan Shepard's car. He has, I think, Walt Cunningham's car, something like that. And he had Alan Bean's car. He had feelers out for all the rest of them. He had the VIN numbers for all the other cars. He has one of them already, so there's five left. Someone calls him up in 2017 and says, I, I think I found the car. 
I think I found one of them. And he goes to this guy's barn. And sure enough, it is the white Al Warden Apollo 15 car. And uh, the guy had bought it from the, so the fourth owner, I'm the sixth owner. So Astro Endeavor is the sixth owner. The fourth owner said, I, I think I know what it is, but the guy can never prove it. So he bought it for like nothing. And then he could never prove it, but he had all the documentation and stuff and kind of had started making calls to see if it was what it was. And that's how somebody found Danny Reed to then come and take a look at the car and, and sure enough, it was matched the VIN number. It was the car. And so Danny took it and immediately put it in a museum. It was on display in a museum, untouched. Funny story, in addition to this, a month later, the museum is open. They have this car there. It's gotten some press and stuff like that. And somebody gives them a call of the museum and says, I have Dave Scott's car. Whoa. So within within a month after after Danny looked for like 20 years for these cars, two of them falls in his lap. Wow. And it happened to be that the uh, Dave Scott's car was like 20 minutes from where this museum was in, in Texas. They uh, they drove over, looked at the car, checked the VIN number. Sure enough, it was the right. And uh, that was in good shape, though. It hadn't sat outside and everything. Dave, uh, Dave Scott's car was in very good shape. And they drove it from that house right to the museum and parked it next to Al Warden's car <laughs> that was already on display. So within a month or two, he, he acquired two of the lost Apollo 15 cars. Now... That's the last time any of these Astrovet cars have been found. So of the six, there's only three that have been found. Alan Beans, which Danny bought direct from General Motors. Al Warden's that showed up. And then Dave Scott's that showed up. There is a red Jim Irwin car. And then there's two more. There's Pete Conrad and Dick Gordon's gold and black cars from Apollo 12 that are still somewhere. Somewhere <laughs> in the wilderness uh, to be found again. But in the meantime... The Apollo 15 Al Warden car is the is of the three. It is unrestored. It's in rough condition, and um, we're actually kind of deciding now uh, what at what level do we take this? Um, do we restore it to how it was in 1971, like as, as authentically as possible? Of course, you know original parts and stuff like that, and same you know paint uh, codes and colors, obviously, or do you kind of leave it alone and and leave it as the time capsule that it is uh, so much that it is? I mean, there's, there have been modifications and accidents and things over the years, but that is the story of how we get here, how it came into my possession. You ask, uh, as we have talked about many times and Emily and everybody knows this, you know, I, I was pretty good friends with Al towards the last couple of years of his life. He and I really hit it off and uh, he became a business partner of mine with a licensed line of, some of his stuff, so uh, flight jackets and some other things that we might be doing in the future. Al Warden for Congress shirts, by the way, that we reproduced the Al Warden for Congress shirts when he ran for Congress in, in uh, Michigan. <laughs> yes, I have one. I almost said something very off color, but I, I don't want to get in trouble on my own podcast. Favorite thing to wear on my chest. <laughs> nice. So I was working with Al Warden and... When he died, I, I I had known Allison. I you know I knew his daughter uh, a little bit. He has a couple of daughters. He has three daughters, and I had heard Allison's name before, and we had briefly chatted maybe once. 
But after he died, there was estate stuff that I was involved in because he was a business partner and we have, you know, he had money coming to him through Lunar Replicas. And so I, I came to know Allison really well and we became friends. And she said, you know, my son Will has been in touch with Danny Reed about this Corvette. He found it on, he saw an article about it online and he was interested in, you know, I think he's going to go take a look at it. And I said, well, that's awesome. That's incredible. And it's, now it's all during COVID. I would have gone with them if it weren't during COVID and I had a young baby. And so he goes out and takes a look at it. Long story short, Danny said, I don't usually sell my cars. I definitely don't sell them to like collectors and, and, you know, Saudi princes and stuff, the people that call me about it. But if it were to stay in the family and you guys became the next stewards of this car, I'd want to go to you. And Will, Al's grandson, calls me up and says, we have to do this. He's not sure when he wants to do it. But Danny said, you know, keep your phone ready. If I, if I, if the moment strikes me, <laughs> we're going to make this happen. <laughs> and I said, sure, you know, whatever you need. I'm a car collector. I've, uh, I've restored several cars. I started in uh, military vehicles when I was a kid. I said this would be incredible. I mean, it kind of bridges everything that I've been doing my whole life. <laughs> About a year and a half later, Al's funeral was delayed for a number of reasons, um, mostly because of COVID and stuff going on at Arlington. He was buried at Arlington Cemetery. I get a call. So what are you doing in two weeks? Come to Arlington. It's Al's funeral. That's a whole nother story, but suffice it to say, I, I thought this was going to be like a big state, you know, big deal. I'm one of 20 people there, like, and it's family and a couple of friends and, you know, maybe 20 people. And it's great. Francis French was there and uh, a few other astronauts and stuff. But um, I'm there and I sit down with uh, Will for dinner after the funeral. We're at this nice place in D.C. And he says, uh, let's call up Danny. He called me. He said uh, he gave us a price. He said, it's basically what he paid for it out of a junkyard. And uh, as long as you guys are, are willing to say, you'll never sell it to anybody else. And it's never going overseas and stuff like that. And I said, I'll sign that right now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it, wound up, it wound up taking a couple of months between some paperwork and other stuff we were doing internally. We, we created uh, um, a, a foundation. Well, it's an LLC, but it's basically operating like a foundation. Uh, the Astrovent Endeavor Project which is co-owned by Will and myself. And that is the entity that actually purchased the car. So the car is, is owned by this, this separate entity that is always going to survive. It's not owned by a specific individual. Okay. Other than the fact that, you know, this is a Corvette, it's a classic car. It was owned by, you know, a famous Apollo astronaut. What also makes this vehicle, you know, really kind of special and unique? From a nut and bolt perspective, uh, not a lot. It's a 1971 LS5 Corvette, which is the big block Corvette. Um, they made two different engines uh, and then kind of different accessories for those engines. So there's different flavors of Corvette. It's a big block Corvette with a different paint job. I mean, that, that's honestly what it is. But it was ordered directly from General Motors. You know, the paperwork on it's very interesting. It Usually there are these dealer codes and stuff when you look up paperwork. Uh, and there's a there's an organization called the National Corvette Restoration Society, NCRS, that is incredibly detailed with all this. I mean, Corvette restorers and owners are insane. I mean, like mm. down to every little sticker and nut and bolt and piece of paperwork, you know, whatever you got. Incidentally, uh, after I started working on Al's Corvette, uh, I was just trying to get it running so it could be safely trailered, you know, to uh, museums and stuff like that, and then 
possibly the restoration shop. I said, you know, it'd be really cool if I had my own that I could drive around. And sure enough, <laughs> I bought a 1972 Corvette that's fully restored. That's mine. But so when I'm working on when I'm working on Al's Corvette, and I'm like, well, you know, you can't really drive it around for a number of reasons. Obviously, you know, it's it's one of the most historic cars, one of the most historic Corvettes in the world. Also, it just doesn't drive really well right now because it's, um, yeah. you know, it's sat outside <laughs> for 20 years. I hop in mine and I take it around the block. (laughs) (laughs) Which leads me nicely into the next question. How much renovation is actually needed? Obviously sat outside for a while, so I'm guessing the paint in particular probably needs a a bit of a touch up, but it's it's not that drivable or it is you can or or, or how bad is it? Well, so when I got it, it uh, came on a trailer from um, Texas, just outside of Austin, uh, came to me. Um, which is an interesting story by itself. I, I thought it was going to be sold off for parts or something because the guy picked it up and it was this, the guy didn't speak a word of English. It was this Russian guy that picks it up and, uh, and drove it in a, like a, in a car trailer um, all the way from Texas. And he got to my house in like two days. It was incredible. He must've driven all night, which I think is illegal, but I don't know. Um, and he was this surfer dude. Apparently he would surf up and down the coast when, uh, when he was driving these cars, you know, this is all he did was transport cars and surf. <laughs> anyway, it gets it gets to my house. It won't turn over. It, the engine wouldn't run. There's a lot of gunk and stuff like that. And it also turned out that the, um, I guess when they strapped it down to the trailer, one of the uh, the, the the tie rods for the one of the the front tire actually had come loose. So the tire was like flapping. It was loose. I had to drag the Corvette up my driveway. I have a. World War II Jeep, and we dragged it up the driveway with my Jeep, which was kind of fun. So it didn't drive, it didn't stop, and it didn't steer. <laughs> and in, and over the course of about two months, and I, I filmed all of it, I got the car driving, stopping, and steering just enough so that it was safe to get on a trailer. I did drive it around the block a couple times, and I may or may not have done a burnout in it once or twice just because that's what you have to do. If you, if you have a big block Corvette... <laughs> Um, you gotta, you gotta tear the rear tires loose every once in a while. <laughs> Just got a massive amount of torque with that for 454 cubic inch, which in liters, I think it's a 7.8 liter or something like that. I, I appreciate I you doing that conversion for me. No problem. But I also, I did, I did the burnouts for Al. I know he'd appreciate that. Yeah. He was a huge fan of Corvettes. He owned several Corvettes after that. Uh, he gave this one back, by the way, this one rolled off the line, on February 14th, 1971. So it is the Valentine's Day car. Yeah, nice. It's either Valentine's, it's either the Ooh. 14th or the 15th, right around there. It's Valentine's <laughs> Day or, you know, the day after Valentine's. How appropriate given at the time that Al was living at the, the ultimate single bachelor pad with the shag carpet oh, yeah. and the stair <laughs> and the staircase, the the uh, spiral stairs. Yeah, he would loan his apartment out to other astronauts on dates and stuff because he <laughs> apparently he had had um, he had had a he had had a designer come in and design it. Like he had some New York designer come in and do it. It was swanky. It was a swanky pad, you know. He was also, he was one of the first like openly divorced uh, astronauts. Yep. Uh, that before, if you got divorced, you were out of the program. And like it was whatever it was Scott Carpenter or one of them yeah. that they kept it a secret for a number of years. He was very progressive, like uh uh, yeah, I love. I'm sorry. I'll shut up. I'm getting off on a tangent. It's I your love show, the, Emily. Just, I, don't know. I'm just I love. I love seeing pictures of him from that time in the swanky apartment with his like outfits. Oh, like yeah. he he had like his little mod 
outfits that he wore. Like he was Big very stylish. Collars and stuff. Yeah, no, oh. he was. Yeah, tweed. He has like the tweed suit. I was like, oh. Jeez. Did he smoke a pipe? I know a couple of the guys smoked a pipe. Uh, he smoked cigarettes. He, I don't think he smoked a pipe. I know Chapman smoked a pipe. John Young smoked a pipe. Yeah. Yeah, Young yeah, did yeah. smoke a pipe. A, a lot of them smoked back then. Yeah, I think Al just smoked like a... <laughs> I think he smoked Cools, which is very appropriate. Really? He was telling me... He told me this story. We were uh, we were having dinner, and uh, and I said, you know... You guys are all chain smokers. Like, when do you stop smoking when you go on the, an Apollo mission? And he says, well, you know, so uh, six months before the mission, you stop smoking. Throw the pack away. Stop smoking. Then four months before the mission, you stop smoking. <laughs> throw the pack away. Get, you know, get all the matches out of the house. Two weeks before the mission, you stop smoking. The morning before the mission, you, you really, you stop smoking. You go on the mission. Get back on the recovery ship. You start smoking again. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Smoked, the day after the mission. So the next question. So, what are your plans now? We know that you love museums and using things to you know inspire the next generations. Are you guys gonna display it or put it on a put it on show or something like that? Everything. Yes, everything. And actually, so Will made the joke. We were doing an interview for um, with Rob Perlman for Collect Space. And he's and he just said on the moment he's like we're gonna drive it two hundred and fifty thousand miles, and that's the goal. <laughs> I think that'd be so cool. No, I you know what it really is is uh, it's a gateway. You know, just anything else. Uh, this is a gateway to uh, talking about innovation and engineering and can do and stuff like that. And uh, you know, when it's I hundred percent, the goal is to drive the car. It needs to be able to move. It needs to be able to move under its own power. It needs to look good. Um, while doing it and, you know, be historically significant still, we want it to be accessible to people and not necessarily just from behind a rope or a glass uh, window, you know, it'd be nice if it were, if you could sit in it, uh, it would be nice if you could take a ride, you know, being in a Corvette's just cool. You know, it's America's sports car. It is, it is the one car that has been continuously produced since the 1950s. You know, there's eight different versions of it from then till now. Uh, now it's this like ridiculous. Uh, it, here's another thing, by the way. So Corvette has always been top of the line. They took the top of the line technologies. General Motors tested everything. They had run flat tires. They had uh, new types of engines and, you know, airbags. So all of that stuff was first tested in Corvettes. Then it would usually go to Cadillac and become the luxury version of it. But like, all within the GM line, it started at the Corvette. Anti-lock brakes, you know, tubeless tires, radial tires. Like there's all of these technologies started in Corvettes. So it's it has always been the spear point of innovation. And they basically said, whatever you got, let's throw it at the wall. Uh, Peter Brock, uh, who I'm also, because I do stuff with uh, Shelby and Ford, Peter Brock, who was one of uh, Shelby's main mechanics and racers, who's actually Carol Shelby's first employee at Shelby American, designed at 19 years old, designed the second generation wow. Corvette. General Motors hired him as a kid out of design school and designed the C2 Corvette. And then he went on, he left there to go Shelby American and designed the, the uh, Daytona Coupe, um, which, you know, was, was placed at Le Mans and Day Daytona and stuff like that. When you look at this car, you're like, wow, it's a really neat, it's an astronaut car. That's cool. It's one of only three left in the world. You can then start telling the whole story of, 
you know, this is the innovation tip of the spear and all that stuff. You know, today's Corvette, the C8 Corvette, is one of the first times American major car manufacturers have done a sports car with a rear engine. You know, it's a mid-engine car. Mm. Um, you know, Porsche has been doing that forever. Ferrari and Lamborghini stuff do that. We've never done that really as an American car company. So for for something that's relatively affordable for, you know, 65 grand, you can get basically what is a, an American Lamborghini, you know, for, for a tenth of the price. It's just this neat, it's a gateway. Like you said, it's a gateway to education and STEM and history and all that stuff. They are cool cars. When I was uh, in Ken- at Kennedy Space Center for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, they had uh, Neil- one of Neil Armstrong's Corvettes, this old blue one. Uh, it cl- clearly seen some miles um, <laughs> and has had many owners since Neil, but it was a, it was pretty cool to see it. I mean, it's so... It was so small, but had such a presence. Well, you and I, you and I are the same height, right? You're about six foot three, six four, yeah, six four. Yeah, yeah. I'm big as well, wide. So yeah, me, me <laughs> almost too. six no, foot I'm four s- wide sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's surprising. Like I, I, they are small cars; they're very low to the ground. Uh, yeah. I drove, I drove my '72 Corvette, which is you know effectively it's exactly the same as the '71 Corvette. I drove it to Washington, D.C. and back. It's about three hours each way from Philadelphia. First of all, pleasure to drive on the highway and stuff, but you are underneath most cars. You know, you're you're like really low. It's it's a lot smaller and there's no, there's nothing between you and the road except for some fiberglass. You know, like it's, it's not the safest thing in the world, but you feel like you're driving. You know, like there's this, there's a totally different experience. And when you're going 70, you're really going 70, you know, or some, or I'm sorry, 65 miles an hour the whole way. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so that's a good point, actually. You went to Washington. You went to the, to see the new Smithsonian exhibits, didn't you? What What's that like? Yes, it is incredible. And I want a big shout out to Lisa Young and the rest of the staff at the uh, Air and Space Museum. I went down with Brandon Franklin, who's a big friend and contributor to uh, Lunar Replicas. Uh, we went down together to... The Udvar Hazy, the reopening of the downtown, the DC Air and Space Museum, was on the anniversary of the X One flight by Chuck Yeager. Ah, the uh, the the Bell X One flight, yeah, the uh, glamorous Glennis. Glamorous Glennis, which is not downtown right now. It's on the floor. You know, it had been hanging from the uh, the flight gallery in downtown uh, for decades since I was a little kid. Anyway, it was on the floor at Udvar Hazy just sitting behind some ropes and I'm, and I looking at it, they weren't doing an event or anything. I'm looking at it. And I said, Oh my God, it's, it's 75 years to the day wow. when this thing flew and I'm standing right in front of it. And you talk about something that's a lot smaller in person. That, that plane is not that big. No. Can you imagine it's 1947, you know, this is world war two technology. You know, you think it was only flown once or something. They flew it for a couple of years. Like yeah. they were, they were doing lots and lots of altitude tests and control surface tests and stuff like that. I think they took it in a spin a bunch of times. Like there were three or four of them or something. And like, this is the only one that's left. But um, yeah, so took it down there, went to Udvar Hazy. Lisa showed us around a little bit. And then um, we went up to the, to the air and space in, in town. And uh, the new galleries are just incredible. Uh, they have stuff out on display now that they've never had together. They have Alan Shepard's 
Freedom 7 next to his spacesuit, which is the first time they've ever been on display next to each other. Very cool. They have Ed White's EVA helmet and umbilical and his maneuvering device next to each other. I mean, it's just the cases that they have here. And they do a really nice job about talking about flight controllers and the simulator guys. There's a whole thing. I have a story about that. Frank Hughes, who was uh, wound up being the Apollo simulator director, uh, so he ran the lunar module and I believe the command module simulators uh, in Houston. He was, you know, 23 years old or something, and these guys were all kid geniuses. And the, you know, the, I think the average age was 27 in Mission Control and at Houston, and they were, it was really a young program. And uh, look what they did! I mean, it's yeah. this incredible feat that they did, and millions of moving parts and stuff. So. Obviously, training is really important. The simulator work is, has to be as close to reality as possible. So these guys, there's there's a whole exhibit now on that. Anyway, Frank says, he calls me up after, um, uh, he somehow got my number or something. He calls me up after the, the news articles and stuff came out about the Corvettes. And he says, hey, I'm Frank Hughes. I'm the simulator director at, you know, for, for Apollo and Skylab and Shuttle. And I was one of the kids that on the weekends when they were they needed to move the cars back b- uh, between Florida and and Texas, they'd throw me a gas card say you know take a date drive to Texas Amazing. or take a date drive to Florida, and he says oh I drove them I you know I must have done it five six times with <laughs> you know Alan Shepard's car Dave Scott's car and you know he said it was such a blast it's a, it's a long drive by the way especially going fifty five miles an hour or whatever but like. He said, yeah, I, I have, I've clocked a lot of, I probably clocked the most miles in those astronaut Corvettes during the program because I was one of the, you know, one of these young kids, single and, you know, got a hot date and took her down to Florida for a weekend. And, you know, the astronauts would fly everywhere. They'd fly in T-38s all over the country. But I guess when they went to fly, I always wondered when they, when they, between Florida and Houston, how they'd have the cars because they seemed to always too. have those cars yeah. with them, you know, now, you know. Now we know. Right, anyway, I'm pretty sure we had a massive digression there and we still don't know the full plan for what you're going to do with the car. What I think we're going to do right now anyway is figure out exactly the level at which we're going to restore it. And part of that is going to be a discussion itself. Um, Right now, the car is at the Simeone Foundation here in Philadelphia. It's one of the most amazing original car collections in the world. Uh, Normally, it's devoted to racing cars, but in this case, they made it sort of an exception for a pop-up exhibit. Um, Check it out. Uh, Simeone Foundation is really absolutely incredible, and it's in the middle of nowhere. Like It's in a warehouse near Philadelphia Airport. Uh, It is a public museum, so it's open every day, but they their whole thing is their cars are all original mm-hmm. and they drive every single one of their cars no matter how rare it is no matter how expensive it is they have stuff that's worth 50 80 100 million dollars wow. and they drive it so they have a team of mechanics they have restoration experts they have conservation experts you know uh, there's a difference between restoration and conservation where you stabilize something in conservation you keep it original versus restoration where you you know at different levels you bring it back to a, a state that it was in in the past we're actually going to make that a conversation there's going to be talks about this while the, while the car is there and she's there right now has been there for the last two months on display a part of this destination moon exhibit that uh, that we created together which plays a bunch of um, 
uh, photos and videos in the background on a projected screen. And then actually they project the surface of the moon on the floor in front of the car, which nice. is really cool. They, they move it, you know, it moves a little bit. So it looks <laughs> like the car is driving on the moon. It's a great little exhibit. It's a total pop-up exhibit, it's something really fresh and new, but the, what we're going to do is have, we're going to bring people in and we're going to do panel talks and we're going to have audience members and through their website, kind of vote on what people think we should do with the car. There's going to be some involvement and it's going to be really neat to talk about how do you approach the restoration, you know, from a historical standpoint, from a, from an academic standpoint versus what we would like, you know, it, we would love it to look like it's brand new that it could rolled off the line. It's February, 1971 or it's, or it's August, 1971. They're just about to fly Apollo 15 and I'm I'm still conflicted on it. I'd love to hear what experts and what the general public is interested in in doing. Then I think it'll be a really interesting talk about you know what do you do if you find a historic car or or you you have grandpa's car or something. What what is the proper way academically and from a social responsibility uh, and then also you know an aesthetic uh, and what's the best thing for the car. So that's what we're doing now. And finally, what else has been going on with you? Uh, any exciting new products on Lunar Replica's uh, website in time for Christmas this year? Yes, I hope so. Um, we've had some manufacturing delays just like anybody else has over the last couple of years. So our, our regular process has changed, um, but we're always going to have flight jackets in stock. So uh, all the flight jackets have been restocked recently. Uh, we're doing the same type one. So early Apollo, early Gemini through the end of Apollo, we're doing pretty much every flight jacket um, and the survival jackets, which were never really used for any kind of press programs or anything like that. They were, they were, they were used in training and there's some really cool photos and it's also really, really comfortable. It's this fur, it's fake fur, but it's this white fur lining. It's just the most comfortable jacket. And I, and especially as the weather's changing now, get yeah. one of those, they're super warm <laughs> and they're awesome. And they're this big red kind of silky material. So you will definitely Whoa. stand out uh, in the cold. We are also working with Chris Gilman at Global Effects, uh, who is the provider for pretty much every space movie and, you know, armor and space and, and all that. They do uh, very nice reproductions of spacesuits and uh, new new design spacesuits and stuff too, stuff that, that no one's ever seen before. Chris is an incredibly talented machinist and obviously has an amazing eye for detail. They, they you know, this company is known for being incredible. Um, it has not been released nor announced yet, but I guess it will be now. We're working on this. They are in production. This is the Apollo tether hook that was used for various things on the program. We're making them as key chains. Yes. Oh, wow. um, but of course you can use it for whatever you want, but the hook itself is completely I mean, it is it is exactly one to one scale and functional and made out of these same materials and stuff. So this, for all intents and purposes, this is an Apollo tether hook, which I found by the way. So the new exhibit in town uh, in in DC at the Air and Space, they use this exact same hook uh, just without the lock on it for the lunar uh, lunar scales. So uh, the uh, lunar regolith scales. I suppose the scale was calibrated for one six gravity and they, it hung off of this hook. And then, uh, you know, you'd hang the, the sample collection bags underneath the hook. So anyway, as a keychain, it's super cool. Anyway, we're going to bring those out 
We are also, you know, it's again, goes kind of hand in hand with the Apollo program is this uh, historic racing, you know, car racing. A lot of the astronauts did that in their spare time. They were um, SCCA racers and stuff like that, which is kind of like the weekend racer program, Uh, non-professional amateur racing, and then some professional racing, you know, as well. I think Scott Carpenter uh, owned a, a Shelby Cobra from from Shelby. Um, whereas a lot of most guys had these Corvettes and other things that they they would go race on the weekends. I have uh, over the last several years have been involved with Shelby American, helping out with some of the uh, the movies and uh, TV things that that have gone on historic racing under license by Ford Motor Company and Shelby American. We're bringing out the reproduction team uniforms and jackets that were worn from 1963 up to 1969. You know, the sky's the limit there. We might even come out with some versions of driving gloves and shoes and, you know, other, other clothing, which I think would be really cool to do a whole kind of lifestyle brand where it takes you back (laughs) to this 1960s thing. Um, If only John Young were still alive, because John was probably the most stylish. He and Al, I think were, we got to have a whole line of John Young, you know, pastel turtlenecks and and tweed jackets. I think that'd be a lot of fun. You know? Yes, like Brooks brother, Brooks Brothers type exactly. little jackets. 60s Brooks Brothers, like Ralph Lauren kind of, uh, you know, yeah, eleganza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're not doing eleganza, but the... Uh, yeah, um, around 1972, around Apollo 16, John Young started looking real good like, oh, around yeah. that time. Woo! Like, I'm sorry, I'll shut up, I'll shut up. That was when he, like, sort of eased into his image, you know, that he kind of stuck with, I guess, for the rest the of the... Turtle, oh, turtleneck from- and pipe and all that, yeah. Right, so, yeah. so what, then, what, what I would like is you to work on this for me, Max. Uh, a John Young replica pipe. Where in, <laughs> yes! in, instead of uh, using it for tobacco, I would like one where I could blow bubbles out of it. Bubbles, yeah, do the bubbles, yeah. sure. Every time I go into a pipe shop and ask if they have bubble pipes, they seem really offended. I don't know why, but I really want a pipe with bubbles. I think it would you be ask for a bubble pipe in the wrong place, you're going to wind up with a bong. You know, we'll <laughs> yeah, do like a, good point. We do yeah. a Saturn V shaped uh, bong. <laughs> How about that? Amazing. See, all, all these ideas, all these ideas. Right? I know we need to do this more. Well, I'm going to pay you guys. <laughs> yeah. Around 1972, Young was really starting to come into his his image or something. I don't know. The, this whole time period, and, I, and I'll, I'll preface this with this. I mean, everything has a deeper meaning with me, right? You don't get any free lunch. <laughs> you know, e- emulating the past is an exercise of pick and choose a little bit. Uh, there were some terrible things going on back there. It was the Vietnam War and segregation and Jim Crow. Uh, this was not a great time in history for a number of reasons. However, interspersed amongst that, there were some amazing things that that were accomplished. If you boil them down and you take the good parts and and let the bad parts fall away, you get this like kind of really neat style. And you get an inspiration for the engineering things. And it's even more inspiring that people did these things during a lot of this strife, you know, despite the amount of segregation and sexism and stuff, there were still female engineers in the program. There were uh, Asian Americans and African Americans that started to, you know, especially the early shuttle program and stuff, they made a conscientious effort for that. And they did amazing things. And I think that actually... The uh, shuttle early shuttle program was one of the spearheads for inclusion. Our next goal for lunar replicas over the next you know two three years is to start moving into the shuttle era. 
just as Amazing. Apollo went into went into shuttle and Skylab and stuff like that. I want a Judy Resnick like signature outfit. That's what I would. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would wear that like every damn day. Like I just that's who I wanted to be when I was a kid. Like when she was still around, I was like yeah. I wanted to be that. Like because she was just incredible. I mean, it was the first time I remember seeing like a modern woman like yeah. of that time doing in space like that was a big freaking deal and i, I just yeah. oh my and god and listen i mean even even, even the stuff with sally ride i mean it, she was yeah. not and not she to was discount not anyone at the else. time obviously you know yeah. but if you retcon it you're saying well this was a this was a member of the lgbt community that yeah. uh went to space and was a major you know was a was a very competent astronaut unfortunately obviously she couldn't you know, at the, the politics at the time yeah. couldn't allow her to, you know, this is another thing I really, uh, I, I, this is not a plug for, for all mankind, but, um, I was not initially a fan of that show. And, uh, recently, like really recently in the last like month or two, I've watched, I, I binged through the whole thing and there's some weird moments and stuff, but, uh, but their correction of things that we should have done when it comes to, um, when it comes to, uh, uh, rights and equality and stuff like that. I think it's really very interesting. Well, I don't think you need to sell Apple TVs for all mankind to Emily or me. Uh, we're definitely huge fans. So, Max, thank you so much for joining us. This has been amazing. Uh, I've learned I've learned a lot, actually. I didn't know some of the stuff you've spoken about, which is always good. And wish you all the best with everything you've got coming up. And, Thanks, uh, man. Uh, I mean, uh, listeners, you should just get onto the Lunar Replicas website. You're guaranteed to find something that you're going to want, especially for Christmas. What's that website again, Dave? Yes. That's lunarreplicas.com. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Thank you guys yeah, for having I spent me on. Far it's, too much money on it, but I don't regret a single penny. That's why. Well, you know, I I'm not it. allowed to give stuff out for free. I've been told specifically. Al Al Warden told me, uh, if you like the guy, you got to charge them double. So oh, no, that's true. I, I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's how I run my business too. <laughs> yeah, that's what he told me about you know freelancing. He's like, charge him a lot. That's right. Okay. Anyway, thank you guys for having me on so much. It's always nice to see you, but I hope to see you at Cosmosphere in a few weeks or whenever, whenever the date is, you know, Hey, we're going back to the moon. I know, right? <laughs> yes. I know. Yes. Good stuff. 10, 9, 8, ignition sequence 5, Isn't Max awesome? Uh, he's one of a he's one of our great guests. We've had him on before, and he's awesome. He's always fun to listen to. I'm really excited about this effort with the car, just because obviously I'm a I love Al. I miss him a lot. Uh, Al Warden's one of those people. I, I think about him every day. You know, I probably will until the the minute I die. I have tons of great Al stories, and he was another one of those guys. You know, he, if you were a friend of his, you were just, he would warmly embrace you. You know, he was just a, he was a genuine person. And it's really cool that this car has been found. Like Max said, you know, it, it would probably cost a, a ton of money to restore it fully to its 1971 status. But it's neat that this artifact at least is out there and it exists, you know, is kind of like this 
this kind of neat nostalgic transportation to that age, you know, to that that time period. Max touched upon this in the interview. Not everything about that time was great. You know, you had the 60s and 70s in the United States. Politically, there were a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like the time we're living in now, you know, not, you know, there it was the best of times. It was the worst of times because now we got Artemis going on and yet we still have per- political turmoil. You know, technology has not fixed everything, but it's still nice to look back at certain things of that time with some nostalgia. For example, the cars and how amazing they were. Absolutely. I think the best part of this story is it's been sat there for 50 years without anyone knowing it it was there. Like the fact that the, no one knew who had it and it's been discovered. How do you lose a car? I know, especially uh, that car that's been in Life magazine, you know, yeah. with that photo, the the infamous photo where they're all posing with the lunar module, you know, and stuff like that. Like, yeah, how do you lose that vehicle? I agree. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, I, I think what Max does is amazing. I think that, that what he tries to do with lunar replicas and, and getting to the bottom uh, of how these things were made, how these out- outfits were made, uh, and finding the stories behind it. And then, I mean, obviously, you buy them for a premium. Uh, when when you do get if you get an opportunity to that they're not cheap but it's all about trying to inspire people with these items as well uh, and, and the outreach that he does with this stuff is amazing he's just a real good egg I'm a big fan I'm a big fan of buying stuff from that website uh, I spent far too much money on it Me too. I love I love um, buying stuff from there I mean just Oh my God, even the I'll t-shirts, start. even like just the standard t-shirts. They've got great t-shirt designs on there. Yeah. I think I've got every single one of them. I love them. I have a pair of AOs from there yeah. and um, American Opticals. And those are like my favorite things of all time. Like instantly, if I ever feel like I have a bad day and I just feel like, man, I'm a dork. Like I screwed up something and made an idiot of myself on a Zoom meeting or did, which is usually every day. I'm, I'm a loose cannon. Uh, yeah, those glasses will make you feel immediately a thousand times. There's something about them. They got that astronaut power. Yeah, they will make you feel a million times cooler. Like, yeah, I'm a badass. I didn't screw up today at all. No, I'm I'm bulletproof. I have a jacket too. I want to. I love my jacket. I wish I could wear it more often because I'm in Florida and we get like one day of cold weather a year. So. I have it in a garment bag so it doesn't get messed up or anything like that. And it's it's exquisite. It's my favorite thing. But those glasses will make you feel sometimes I'll just wear them on a plane as like my like a sleep shade. And immediately people think like, oh, wow, that person's bad. At, you know, no, they don't. But still, <laughs> I'd like to think that people think I'm, uh, you know, wow, that's pilot is hell. So, yeah, that's my favorite thing. I really like the personal training gear. I've got, I think I've got four or five of those t-shirts. They're so comfortable. I need the shorts because I love, um, there's this great video. It's one of the cheesy mid sixties, like educational videos. And it's called something like great day to day or something like that or something like that. And it's a video about the astronauts training res- regimen and how they exercise. It's hysterical because so, it's so like set up, like it's not candid at all. But like they follow like, here's how John Young exercises on the road. And he's in a <laughs> hotel room doing sit ups. And you can tell he's like over it. He's like, I don't want to do this anymore. 
But one of the clips is of um, Al Warden and Mike Collins playing handball. We're in the outfits. And um, I think those the Lunar Replica stuff is based on that clip. It's certainly that era. Yeah. Yeah, they're really short shorts. I like wearing them. I'm not sure that other people like being around me when I'm wearing them. <laughs> I would wear them around my house, maybe. Like, I remember when I was in the military, we had similar shorts. And I'm not a very big person. I'm 5'2 on a good, like, in the morning, I'm 5'2. And um, they, they're they very short. Yeah. Street, yeah. I Not my favorite pants in the world. So I would probably wear them in my house, maybe. But anyway, everyone, as we say, everyone should just go over and find something on that website and, and support what Max is doing. It's great. It's lunareplicas.com. Uh, and if you want to watch that full interview, then just head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things uh, where you can also watch every other interview we've ever done in full as well uh, so head over to there but thanks max for joining us again hey congratulations this is real good so emily what's caught your eye this week i hope i okay i'm hoping i don't steal what you're talking about but one thing that's caught my eye actually uh just today was uh european space agency is releasing their new astronauts tomorrow, The who they are. How have I not seen this? Okay, okay. I was worried that I would steal what you were talking about. So this is good. No, not at all. Apparently tomorrow they're releasing their whoever they're going to be announcing their new astronaut class. I think this is the newest astronaut class that's been announced since the one from 2009, which has a lot of, yeah. you know, Tim Peake, uh, Samantha, Christopher Reddy, Omar Pesquet, all those. So I think this will be the first group since then it is they also when they released an announcement you know for new astronauts i want to say a couple of years back they said you know we want people um you know with disabilities to apply i'm really curious to see who's going to make the cut because we may see possibly the first astronaut with an open disability you know maybe somebody who's lost a limb I should say agency astronaut because last year during Inspiration 4, Haley Arsenault flew in space and she has a internal prosthetic because she had bone cancer. She obviously did wonderful during her flight and, and to my knowledge had no issues at all. So um, I'm really excited to see this. This could be something that's a total, in my opinion, a game changer for how we look at astronauts. And, and who can fly into space, you know, as far as accessibility is concerned, because we all love that archetype. And we even talk about it, you know, during during today's episode, we all love, you know, the right stuff, the the vintage astronauts from the 60s. And they were all in pretty much flawless shape. You know? Yeah, there was a gentleman and I forgot his name, um, but Colin Burgess discussed it in the book Shattered Dreams. There was a gentleman in the mid 60s who applied for NASA to become an astronaut. And he was I want to say he was missing, um, uh, if not one leg, possibly both legs. I could be wrong. I'm trying to do this from memory, but he'd been in a really bad plane accident and, and suffered a limb loss. And he applied to NASA and obviously he didn't make the cut. But it's a really cool chapter about there really wasn't anything in my opinion, you know, I'm not a doctor, but there wasn't really anything to hold him back. To me, there was no real reason he couldn't be an astronaut. Does that make sense? I guess the logic at the time 
would have been some of the evacuation processes in an emergency required the guys to get out pretty quick. Yeah. And run down corridors, stuff like that. So perhaps that was the thought process. Uh, it's possible. Yeah, I, I'm just speculating. I have no idea. Yeah. But but you know we've seen the videos of uh, of those evacuation taking place. So maybe that was it. I would have to reread this chapter again. It, it is in a the Colin Burgess book, uh, Shattered Dreams, and I'm embarrassed. I I don't remember the gentleman's name, but he was a pilot and he lost a limb and he tried to apply as an astronaut and. When I read the chapter, I was like, there's really no reason he couldn't have been an astronaut. You know, he was probably as well qualified as any of the guys who made it in. Yeah, so I, I digress a bit, but I'm really excited. I'm hoping we get to see a little, you know, sort of, a, uh, I guess, body diversity, you know, limb diversity, maybe. I don't know. Maybe there's somebody hearing impaired or something like that. I mean, I don't know. I'm just guessing. For all I know, they may have not hired anybody with a obvious disability. But, um, you know, I'm just speculating here. But I'm very excited to see who's going to be in that class. For all we know, it could be something that really changes our, our view of what an astronaut is. And I think that's important as, no oh God, as humanity extends out into the high frontier. No, seriously, though, um, as humanity goes out further into space, we're, we need to see all kinds of people going, you know, and that includes somebody who may be, you know, have a limb difference or may have neurodiversity or something like that. You know, somebody who might not be fit the, I guess, the right stuff archetype. I obviously completely agree. I will say that I think you might be disappointed tomorrow because I have a feeling it was a separate program. And therefore, I think it might be something that they announce at another time. I may be wrong, but my remember my memory of the announcement was it was something slightly separate. You may be completely right. I may be remembering this incorrectly because it's been a while. It's been a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a thing. And they definitely talked about it. And it was definitely something people could apply for. But I'm not sure if it's being announced at the same time. Yeah. If it is, amazing. If it's not, We'll want to be asking the question, when does that program exactly, come out yeah. as well? Because it's still important. But I just think we need to perhaps temper our expectations, uh, expectations yeah. a little bit and, and, and not... I don't want to set Issa up for getting a bunch of hate mail, you know? Absolutely. As long as they're still doing it, as long yeah. as it's not disappeared altogether, but it might not come out tomorrow. Exactly. And, and there's part of me that thinks it needs its own announcement anyway, because let's make a big deal out of I this. I agree. Because it's important. Do you know what I mean? I completely agree. So whatever happens as far as that entire situation is concerned, I'm really excited. And I guess we'll see a new astronaut class for Europe tomorrow. And I'm also wondering what countries they're going to pick on, uh, pick from. It, it would be neat to see like Belgium get an astronaut or something like that. I yeah. don't know if they'll get. I'm, I'm just saying it would be, be kind of neat to see a country that hasn't had an astronaut maybe get one. 
this time. Yeah, we'll, ta- we'll take another one as well. Hey, I'm going to do something that you normally do. I'm going to drop a name. When I was speaking to Tim Peake in May, um, <laughs> he was talking about the, the application process and how he was part of the screening, how the astronauts that are currently there are all part of that process uh, and how they were getting down to that final interview stage. I completely forgot that this was coming up. So anno- I'm kind of now annoyed that the next few episodes are pre-recorded because we're not going to be able to talk about this for a few weeks. Yeah, that's actually very exciting. So thanks for bringing that up. So Dave, what has caught your eye this week? Well, obviously Artemis. Artemis. <laughs> but, but obviously Artemis has. Oh, I just okay. assumed you were going to talk about it. <laughs> so I, I didn't bring it up. Well, it kind of has something to do with Artemis. The the astronauts may, the, whoever gets selected might fly on Artemis. We don't know. That's a good point. Well, let's let's just very briefly say how amazing it's been. The launch, everything, the 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 flyby that happened yesterday as we we're recording, it's been amazing. That the rocket went. I think at the end it was within second feet per second of where they thought it was going to be. I mean, it's it's for all the delays, for all the years of uh, of is it going to go from all the full starts, it it's doing exactly what. Ken uh, said last week when we were interviewed, or two weeks ago, whenever it was, when we were talking to him about it, it's working perfectly so far. Yes, it's still got stuff to do, but this has been an impressive, impressive couple of weeks, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's been, to me, it's been well worth the wait, you know, and, you know, being somebody who uh, helps maintain a very large spaceflight group on Facebook, it, it, we get so much annoying crap. Like, I hope it, I don't even want to say it people hoping it'll fail. So we've heard, you know, a lot of dire, you know, oh, it's not going to work, you know, and we hope it, whatever. And I couldn't be happier that it's worked out. But most first launches do not go flawlessly. Usually there's something that, like the first shuttle launch was not perfect. There were problems. It was to the extent, I think if John Young had, John Young later said something like, if I had known, I would have gotten out of there. But this one looks... I mean, just right down the line. And I mean, I was watching it from here and I'm still like, I can't believe I saw it. And it looked, it was huge. <laughs> I mean, you could tell from here. I was like, I can't believe I saw something that was the size of a building going that fast. I mean, it just, yeah, it's not miraculous, but it seemed, it sure seemed like it. Oh my God. Yeah. One thing I would, I, I would say about the launch. Well, I've got two things to say about it. One, it came off the pad so much quicker than the Saturn V did. Yeah it clearly moves like quickly, which was really quite something. The one disappointment, obviously I can't go outside and watch it from, from here. We have to rely on the live stream and I hope that NASA get better with cameras on the, on the rocket or showing the rocket. The animation that they skipped to was also quite poor. No telemetry data, all that kind of stuff. We, we're spoiled these yeah. days with how SpaceX do it. And I think I'm clearly someone who's into it and excited and loved it anyway. But potentially they will lose out, on, especially when you start putting humans in there. If they don't get that right, I think people, we know what it's like. People are going to moan. People who are into it are going to moan. And people who are on the fence about it all might not be as inspired as they could be if they get it right. The technology is there. We know it can happen. Uh, so they need to reach out to their people who are doing it right right, and say, 
hey, let's let's get this right. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to be negative about it, but I just think it's really important. I think the graphics could have used some help. I agree totally because, and I think, like you said, we're spoiled because we have SpaceX. And back in the day in the United States, we had like Walter Cronkite, you know, we had CBS, ABC, yeah. NBC, and they all had sort of their own animations. I mean, it looks very primitive now, but back then it was pretty, you know, high tech animations. I think we got kind of spoiled by all that. I agree. I think the graphics could be better and have the telemetry on them and all that. Like you said, I don't want to be too negative or anything. Honestly, I didn't watch a lot of the launch coverage because I was too scared. I honestly did not think the launch would go as perfectly as it would. Like I expected one thing to go wrong. Yeah. And not out of spite or being petty, nothing like that. It was just just a first launch of a new vehicle. A lot of first launches are partial fa- uh, partial failures. You yeah, know, absolutely. Because they've never flown it before. They don't know how it's going to react, you know, but no, this looked pretty much right. I was shocked at how well it went, but I shouldn't have been. It's NASA and they make it look easy. Kind of like Simone Biles makes what she does look easy, but it's not easy, you know? Yeah, uh, especially more impressive when the rocket was standing in a hurricane four days beforehand, but that's yeah. a whole other story. <laughs> I have, I have one other little thought, which I don't want to talk about because we don't have time. Something that struck me when I was watching the footage and, and yesterday watching the flyby footage is I don't know the names of any of the mission controllers. And yeah. Do you know what? We talk about the Apollo era mission controllers and we put those guys on a pedestal, rightly so, those mission control people who did so much. And the new era mission control are going to be doing so much and they are doing so much. And we don't know who they are. I'm sure there are plenty of people who do. I should know who they are. It annoyed me when I realized, I don't know these people. Yeah. Why don't I know these people? I want to know these people. I want to respect, like, love and respect these people as much as we do Gene Kranz, Jerry Griffin, and Glenn Lunny, and John Aaron, and so on. Names re- I can roll off my tongue. I want to have that relationship with these people <laughs> who are doing it now. I, I really agree with you. Yeah, totally. You know, I know a few people just because they're friends of mine. And, you know, I know them... I know them because I'm friends with them, but I feel ashamed because I don't know their colleagues, you know, and it shouldn't be like that. I agree. They should be superstars as well. I think John Young said it, you know, we're getting out of the superstar business because he didn't want to be a superstar and stuff. And I think since the 80s, you know, shuttle astronauts were a little more anonymous. You know, mission controllers became a little more anonymous. And but I I agree. I, I want to see them be championed and celebrated, especially, you know, since. We're going to have people going to the moon. That's about as big as you can get. (laughs) Absolutely. You don't get any bigger. Right. If you haven't changed any, it's really something else. I tell you, John has been telling me about it for three years, but ain't no way you can describe it. That's it for this week. The next three shows are all being pre-recorded as I'm off to the US to visit some air and space museums and to meet Emily for the first time. And Emily is heading to New Mexico for a Celestius launch before coming to meet me. So it's a pretty exciting time for Space and Things. Uh, We've got three great episodes recorded, though, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a thing. Thank you for listening. And a special thanks to those who continue to share the podcast with your spaceflight-loving friends. A big thanks to those who have joined us on Patreon, too. That really does help us out a lot. You can do that on patreon.com slash space and things. Uh, someone purchased a T-shirt from our website this week, too. So maybe that might be something you'll want for Christmas. But in the meantime, don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. 
Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.